Well, again, good morning. I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always excited. That's just life. Uh, but, but still, uh, just a beautiful, we're supposed to be like 60 degrees today. I don't know how you can't see that and not be excited. Of course, it's going to rain the rest of the week, but it's spring, right? So it's going to do that. We just have to understand um, that's, that's where we're at. And uh, it's, it's just the blessing it is to, to meet together. And so um, last week, last week we began to introduce you to a little bit of the history, the origins of, of our church and where uh, the independent Christian church kind of came from. And we began, began with Jesus and his ultimate creation of the church, the church established through him right after uh, his resurrection. But then we skipped all the way forward to the birth of what was called the Restoration Movement, which birthed the, the independent Christian church, Church of Christ, and then the Disciples of Christ were kind of the names given into those original churches out of that movement. Now, some of those did go on to become actual full denominations, which is interesting um, in, in, its, in its own history. But why aren't we a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church and those kinds of things? What makes us different? I, like many of you, grew up in an independent Christian church, and so I just never knew anything else. And so I, nobody ever explained it to me. Nobody ever explained why, um, why, why, why are the differences? What are the differences? Does it even matter? And so it's great to come from that background and begin to just explain some of those things. Um, if you missed last week, please check it out online. You can go back and watch it on our YouTube channel, or you can download the podcast. Uh, the podcast eventually will have a link on our new website, which is coming within the next two weeks. Our new website will launch, and I'm super excited about that because I've been working a lot on it. Um, I'll let you know when that happens. Um, it's just way cooler, that's all I can tell you. Just way cooler. Um, but the, the podcast is something that we're going to use for more than just the messages. We're going to post some other things on there. Actually, I've got an idea for this week. I just got to remember to write it down after service so I don't forget so I can record that um, for this week. But either way, just remember, in this short three-week series, this is not a comparison between churches. That's not the point. The point is just let you know who we are and where we came from and why we do some of the things that we do. Our prayer in this is that our spirit in delivering this, are, it's, it's identical to those that began this movement. All we want is unity among believers, unity in the faith. I don't care if you're this denomination or that. No, unity in Jesus is what it is all about. And so as a result, I want to remind you of just a couple things that we covered last week because it sets up this week absolutely Perfectly. A few of the, the beginning foundational principles for this restoration movement. It was found in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' garden in the prayer, where he's a prayer in the garden, where he's praying for all of us, ultimately, believers, into the future. The first one being sanctification of the truth. Their idea was they wanted to restore biblical authority. They wanted people to once again just stick to what the Bible said. They wanted unity among believers. They wanted to promote genuine, authentic Christian unity that was observable from outside of the church. Other people could see these Christians all getting along and wonder, what do they have in common? Jesus, of course, is the correct answer. And that call for all believers to worldwide evangelism. A big deal in the independent Christian church. It's why we're going to Poland in a little less than two months. Yes, it's still carried on to this very day. Now, today we're going to look at some of our most basic beliefs as a Christian church found in the text. These ideas, these, these principles from the very beginning are still things that we pursue, we're still chasing after, we're still trying to get right. Um, those that started this movement were very fond of phrases, uh, slogans, and things like that. That was the generation, the time period in American history when this movement started. 
And you must understand that these slogans were put together by man, meaning they're not perfect, and they often fall short of what they were truly intending to accomplish through these slogans. What's really fun, actually it's not fun at all, when you do research and you begin looking into these things, uh, we're actually just discussing this before service as a, as a group, um, as we were praying together. When you go online, because the internet's such a wonderful place, right? When you go online and you begin studying and researching, you can find three or four articles or, or, or documents or, or even publications that absolutely are based on the truth and you can just tell it and you're right there. And then right mixed in with it is something that appears to be truth. And then you begin to read a little further, and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? And you see an unbelieving world will read that one and go, well, those don't agree, so I, none of it could possibly be true because there's no starting point. There's no foundation, and that's what we strive to bring here. Our beliefs, our slogans, whatever you want to call them, they can be misinterpreted, absolutely. They can be misapplied. They can be twisted by those outside of the church, but let me tell you, they can be twisted by people inside the church as well. Welcome to the world in which we live, right? That's just the reality of everything anymore. That's why you have to have a starting point, a truth, a rock-solid, absolute core of foundational beliefs that you will not move from to base the rest of your life on. It's called a Christian worldview, something I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in time in this, in this place, all right? So we, we talked about a few of these slogans. I'm going to mention three of them again briefly, the three big ones that we talked about last week, just to review. That first one, they believed they had no headquarters for heaven, but heaven, no, no creed but Christ, and no book but the Bible. If you don't know, the reality of the independent Christian church is that each of these churches, us, first Christian, first Christian, this Christian, we all exist independently. There isn't some national organization that we're all supported by or that we all answer to. Each of us stick to our own Bible, our own doctrine, if you will, coming from that Bible. We don't answer to some outside governing authority. We're independent. We just use biblical guidelines for the basis of all of our decisions, for our leadership, and all of those kinds of things. Our hope is here actually at Berea that within this next year, we're going to actually get fully back to a completely biblical church governance model. If you didn't know, church boards aren't in the Bible, okay? And so we want to get away from that and go right to exactly what the Bible shares with us and how to organize and administrate the, the duties, the affairs of a church, okay? Of the, according to the New Testament church that we were given. And as a church leadership, we rely completely completely on the words and teachings of Christ and his apostles for all the decisions and things that we do. This is important, okay? It's an important thing. We don't have something else to answer to. The next level, uh, the next slogan, if you will, from last week, where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. Our goal, as was theirs, was to simply let the word of God speak for itself. Not try to write things in the margins, not try to put things in there that aren't genuinely there, especially in our culture today, where you and I both know, we hear it all the time, people just twisting and taking scripture out of context and even adding things in that aren't there at all to promote some form of agenda. At the same time, there are instances where the Bible maybe just doesn't address certain things. That is possible in some things. Very few of them matter, to be quite honest. But there are places where that occurs. And when that is the case, Let's not let, let, let's not let that be a point of disagreement among believers. Let's look past it and look straight to Jesus and focus on what's really important. Unity is the key. And then the last one, my favorite from last week. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. And in charity, 
or, or in matters, uh, in matters of, of uh, all things, in, in all things, charity, which is actually the Latin word caritas, which means Christian love, is what that word actually represents, okay? We've be, we got to be together on everything Jesus. We can't be separated on the things of Christ. We have to be unified in that. We have to separate our opinions from the absolute truth of God and stick to the truth of God and make that what is what is important and then encourage others to do the same. And then lastly, we've got to live a life of love toward God, toward each other within the body of Christ, and then finally, toward those that don't yet know the love of Jesus, because how on earth will they ever experience it if they're not receiving it from us? It's an important concept. This week, we're going to look at some of the most basic, fundamental, biblical core beliefs, if you will, of our church, as established by the leadership several years ago, all of which come directly from the Bible. This is a very brief survey, very brief survey. So understand that many of these topics could be weeks-long sermon series, okay? So just know we're just going very quickly through these to give you some ideas, and I'll tell you why. Our goal in this isn't to give you every detail. Our goal is to pique your interest and go, hmm, I'd really like to know more about that fundamental belief, or I'd really like to study that a little more. Maybe I need to prepare myself a little more in case I'm challenged about this belief that I should have from Scripture when I share Jesus with others. Here's the thing. These key biblical beliefs unite us in the things of Jesus. These are crucial elements to sharing our faith in God, the truth of God, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the church, the truth of his word with an unbelieving world. So we'll start off with a really minor topic, the Trinity. <laughs> As I said, these could be weeks-long sermon series, right? This is a big, big topic. We believe in one God, right? We're a monotheistic faith. We believe in a singular one God, but yet we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How does that work? <laughs> We're not going into a deep theological explanation of that today, okay? That's for the future. But here's the thing. We certainly do believe it. So in this attempt at brevity, I'm going to keep this explanation very short and pray that it will just whet your appetite to do some research and to look. And remember, when you do that research, you're going to find three articles that are on the money, and then you're going to find one, you're like, what on earth? Yeah, disregard that one. Read it and go, how did they get to that? And then move back to the truth, because that's what's important. There's one God, and he exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's always existed this way. Now, exactly what is this concept? Well, very simply and quickly, this is a classical Christian doctrine called the Trinity. Now, the Trinity, the word Trinity isn't mentioned in the Bible anywhere. That word does not exist. That is a man-made word. But this concept of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these three things do exist in Scripture, so we had to give a name to it. Here is the basic classical definition, if you will, of the Trinity. God is three persons who share one essence or substance. We have been calling this the Trinity and explaining it in the terms of these three persons since the time of a man named Tertullian back in the third century AD. So it goes back quite a way. Some people disagree. We understand that. The basic understanding is this. A person is a thinking, willing center of consciousness. And God is three persons means that this one divine nature, within this one divine nature, there are three individual centers of consciousness. Every person is fully conscious of themselves 
in relationship with the other two as a completely individual relationship, but they know they also exist eternally, interpersonally, as a relationship together with the other two. We then call these the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three, these three persons, but nonetheless one living God. Now, the thing about this concept is it is mysterious because you and I don't exist like that, nor can we. <laughs> this is the nature of God. It is supposed to be a little mysterious. We do not understand everything about God, nor does he want us to at this phase of life. He intentionally leaves things out to make us ask questions. I hope that you enjoy that. I know some of you, it drives you crazy. Why? Because you have a piece of God within you that desires to know more, wants to know more, and so that frustrates you that you can't figure some things out. I understand that. Just keep in mind, it doesn't mean that the essence of God is somehow divided into three distinct units. There is no other God that exists besides the one true God. It's the heart of our monotheistic faith. God is referred to in the plural all the way back. You've got to go all the way to Genesis chapter 1 to find the first time. Verse 26, where he said, Let us make mankind in our own image. That is definitely a plural statement about who God is. But the New Testament is where we base our claims on this divine trinity. Jesus, in his final address to his disciples, the challenge, our calling card as believers, Matthew 28, 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 13, 14, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Once again, those very three distinct names mentioned in there. First Peter 1, 2 says that the saints are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. All of these passages show that the Christians have been redeemed by and are related to not just an abstract deity, but to the three persons who are the one true and living God. It is an incredible concept to consider for some people, they're able to just accept it and move on, and that is great. For others, you would like to know more and investigate more. You can go get many doctorate degrees on this study if you would like. Books out the wazoo, learning about these topics, but it's fundamental and foundational, formational in our faith. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of all things, visible and invisible. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, and our one and only Savior. We believe he was born both fully human and fully divine, conceived by the Holy Spirit within the Virgin Mary, and then lived a sinless life. We believe in Jesus who suffered and was crucified, who died and was buried, who rose again in his bodily form from the dead on the third day. Jesus who ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus, who will return to this earth to judge both the living and the dead. Now, here's the thing. For most of you listening, that is like, duh. Of course we do. But here's the thing. This is essential. These formational beliefs, foundational beliefs are essential in our world because there are many belief systems out there that claim the name of Christ 
yet they do not hold to these most basic biblical truths. In many circles, they dismiss Jesus as something less than God. They ignore the virgin birth as simply a myth. They don't believe it's possible that anyone could have ever walked this earth and lived a sinless life. And they might believe, might believe that Jesus was crucified, but they certainly don't believe there's any way he could ever have come back from the dead because that is impossible. Well, you're right. It is. And thankfully, our own Lord and Savior addressed the impossible, didn't he? In Luke 18, at the conclusion of his conversation with the rich young ruler, some people gathered and said, well, then Jesus, who can possibly be saved if not him? And Jesus said, well, you see, what's impossible for man, yeah, not that big a deal for me. Hmm, interesting. So yes, Jesus did exist. Yes, Jesus did die. And yes, Jesus absolutely rose from the grave. Amen overcoming the power of sin and death. Again, it seems if you've been in the church your whole life, like, of course, I know those things, but I'm telling you the world does not believe. Even many who claim, claim the name of Christ don't believe in this Jesus, and it's so sad. Now, we absolutely could end there. Absolutely, that's enough, quite honestly. It truly is enough to base what we should have as faith upon. But the reality of our world is we need more explanation. We need to define who we are more clearly for others so they understand. And we have to have a biblical foundation knowledge for these beliefs. So we're going to give you just a few more. We'll start with just the Holy Spirit all by himself. The forgotten God, as he's often called. It's actually a book by Francis Chan as well. If you're curious about the Holy Spirit, it's a very good book. Short, easy to read, um, really good book about the forgotten God, the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Christian church, to say that we've ignored the Holy Spirit, I would say is probably an understatement um, because for lots of, of reasons, um, we've held it back for sure. We've held it at bay, kind of keep it on the perimeter. Yeah, it exists. Okay, we just don't really want it to move because the Holy Spirit, there's some uncertainty there. There's some unknown about the Holy Spirit and what it might do at any moment in time. If we allow it to move in our midst, some people are uncomfortable with that. Well, here's the bad part about that. The Holy Spirit is to be the incredible power of God dwelling within each and every believer. The Holy Spirit is to be the thing that guides us, the thing that flows through us in this life, the thing that empowers us to do even greater things than Jesus himself even did. Now, those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' talking to the disciples when the Spirit comes, you will be able to do even greater things than you've seen me do. Can you imagine the look on their face as he said that? What? But you're Jesus. How on earth could we do? Because you have me within you. It's called the Holy Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit, who is a personal and active part of this triune God, the Trinity. Jesus' description in John 16, verse 5, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I go away. Because unless I go away, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he will prove to the world to be, in the, prove to the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I... I'm going to the Father where you can see me no more. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands 
condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will guide you into the truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. This is Jesus describing the Spirit that is within each and every believer. The Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian's, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? It's dwelling within you, the Spirit whom you have received from God. Why, Christians, do we ignore this Spirit? Do we push back this Spirit? Why don't we let the Spirit flow through us? Another area that we're passionate about is the Word of God. Last summer, we answered some questions from different folks that they turned in over the summer, and one of those questions was about the Bible. So we went into a two-week description of the Bible, where we got it, and, and why we believe it is absolutely true. If you weren't here then or missed that, you can go back. Again, you can YouTube it or go to the Escape Yourself podcast, either one, July 21st and July 28th, or the two Sundays that we discussed the Bible. But to sum it up in basically two sentences, here it is. We believe the Bible, the God's holy word. We believe it is God-inspired. He inspired those original writings of Scripture, and therefore the Bible is completely true and trustworthy in all its parts. And as a result, we accept the Bible as final authority of all matters of faith and practice. Now, each of these statements that, that we're making today have many scriptures to go along with them, and uh, all of those will be on the website when it's up and running here in a couple weeks, just so you know. Um, but, but actually, they're currently on the old one as well for the most part. Just keep that in mind. Here's the thing. We don't believe in the Bible because it's the Bible. We believe in the Bible because Jesus believed in the Bible, and we believe in Jesus. So keep that in mind. The greatest proof of our belief in scriptures come from Jesus. Belief in Jesus confirms that, in fact, the Bible is true because Jesus confirmed that the Bible is true. Jesus' words, as recorded in Luke 24, 44, he said this, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled as it is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, if you do the math on that, that is 30 of the 39 books of the Old Testament. The other books, for the most part, are books of history. So, Jesus believed in virtually the entire, a reference in this point, the entire Old Testament. He actually specifically cites 14 different books, if you will, that we call the Old Testament. He quoted Moses. He speaks about the prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, and Jonah by name. He, he cites the works of Zechariah and Malachi. He believed in the people of the Old Testament and that they actually existed. People like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon, David, Elijah, Elisha. Jesus believed that the stories in the Old Testament were factual. They were not some form of mythology, and he references them specifically. So, belief in Jesus confirms the Bible to be true because Jesus confirmed the Bible to be true. A few last core beliefs. We believe that people were created by God and that people then willingly chose to sin against God. And as a result, we are all consequently lost without hope. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And apart from Jesus, there is no hope in this world. We believe that salvation, the forgiveness of sins, cannot be earned. It is given to us only through the blood of Jesus and by God's grace alone. 
We believe that we must respond to God by admitting our sin and our need for a Savior, by confessing the truth about Jesus, by turning away or repenting from our sins, by trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, by being baptized, immersed in to Christ. And we believe in the sanctity of human life from conception till natural death. Man, is that a big topic, huh? But it's truth. We believe in the holy institution of marriage between one man and one woman as rooted in God's creation of man and woman in his image and then the relationship between Christ and his church. We believe in God's creation of each person as male or female at the moment of conception. And we absolutely believe in the church's mission to seek and save the lost, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all of Jesus' commands. Church, we have to stand for what we believe. We don't have a choice. God didn't give us the opportunity to pick and choose what kind of faith. He gave it to us. He spelled it out for us. In order to stand for what we believe, we actually have to know what it is we believe, and we might have to learn where it is that we get this information. Not because it's a good idea, not because it's rational or it's well thought out, and it's certainly not politically correct in our culture, but we need to know it because this is the way of Christ. This is his will for this world in which we live. It is who he calls each and every one of us to be. And if we're to become more like him, we've got to move away from our own ways and move more into his ways. I referenced this kind of vaguely earlier, Isaiah 55. It puts into perspective how we, you and I, should view God's plan, his design, as compared with you and I and our perspective, our view, if you will, of the world and what it's pursuing. It says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Can we just pause right there? We're supposed to be the ones that think everybody else is wrong and everybody's going to hell and everybody's this. You know, according to this passage, it says right here that our God is willing to forgive who? Anyone. Anyone at all that turns to him. Anyone. It's not up to us to make that decision. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord's. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We don't comprehend or understand the thoughts of God, only what he's revealed to us. Someone asked me the other day, hey, why, why are we studying this right now? There's other things that we, we definitely could be looking at. Absolutely, they're true. There are. Maybe we could focus on some things that are more challenging. Maybe not, I might contend, quite honestly. Things that might help us grow a little more. Well, I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Can a plant grow without soil? <laughs> of course not. Absolutely it cannot. Jesus shared with us in that parable the four types of soil. Do you remember that? The rocks, the seed, the, weed, or the, 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 rocks, the path, the weeds, and then, of course, the fertile soil. Only one of them was successful. So consider the last few weeks and next week as well to be an attempt by God to just enrich our soil, to prepare us for the battles, I would say, that lie ahead. But let's be real. If we're out talking with folks, interacting with people, they're the battles we fight every single day. For me personally, 
It boils down to 1 Peter 3.15, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. We have to know what we believe, and we have to know why we believe it. Now, the full context of that passage begins in verse 8, where Peter's writing, Finally, all of you be like-minded. we got to know what we're talking about. Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with insult or evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Well, in this world, quite a few. So Peter goes on. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. And then the money verse. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an account for the hope that is within you. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against you and your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it's God wills to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We must be prepared to give an account to those that ask us, whether they're asking out of pure motives or evil. That's not for us to decide. God can use our testimony then to change whatever their motives were into his motives. We have to have our firm foundation on the rock that is Jesus Christ. This world and Satan will try like crazy to find our weaknesses our flaws and expose them and dig at them and chip away at them. And that's why being in a body like this is so important because we're not going to do that to one another. We're going to do the opposite. We're going to build up one another to prepare each other for those attacks that will come. He'll work to create doubt. He'll work to try to confuse. Absolutely, that's the spirit of Satan, the spirit of confusion for sure. So we have to stand firm together. And we have God's word to unite us together. And it's an amazing thing. And so as we close today, I just want to throw it out there again, because we always, always will. One of our foundational beliefs to go all the way back, one of my most famous, famous, one of my most favorite projects I did, I had to take a restoration movement class as well, a history class. I didn't share that last week. I just told you McKenna did. But in that class, you have to write a closing paper, like she did. Um, I don't always follow the rules. And so, um, I asked my professor, I said, hey, um, these are the topics you gave us to write about. How about if I don't? And he's like, well, what's your idea? I said, well, here's what I'd like to do. I would love to go, and I want to look up some of the original um, sermons from the Restoration Movement and some of those early authors of the Restoration Movement. I want to read their sermons and then just kind of write some surveys of it. And he's like, hmm, I've never had anyone do that before. Sure. So I did. So I went online, and I found these books from the 1800s with these old sermons in it. And I began reading them. And I was like, wow, that stuff preaches. Like, wow. Now, um, I've actually dabbled with and One day I may do it just for fun, just literally preaching one of those sermons. Um, you'll be offended. I'm just telling you. Because, not because they're not speaking truth. Oh, no, no. 
Because they don't sugarcoat the truth. <laughs> They're like, this is how it is. Deal with it, <laughs> you know? Um, there was no, it's not that there wasn't compassion. Absolutely, there's compassion. That's why they were sharing it. They didn't want people to die and go to hell, and so they're just bold about that, and we've lost some of that. And I understand why. It's a different generation. It's different people. I get that. But there is a truth that must be spoken, and it's one of the truths that all churches ultimately should be speaking. That is the truth of Christ, and he is the only, only Lord and Savior that could possibly ever save you from the hopeless world that we live in. And so if you've never made that decision for him, then man, today is the day to do that. And that spirit that we like to compress in the Holy Spirit and shove under our seats so we don't accidentally clap or accidentally sing louder or accidentally come forward and, and pray with people. I mean, we like to just compress that. That Holy Spirit will begin to creep out of you if you allow it. And God will change you first and foremost. And he will change this place and then he will change this community and it will change your life and your outlook on life for all eternity. It's an incredible experience. So don't miss that moment. Father God, Father God, it is amazing who you are. Though we don't understand it all, I clearly don't have a clue about so many of it. We, we just have the superficial, superficial knowledge of you. And the, even the more books we read and the more things, we're still just scratching at the surface the greatest theologian truly doesn't fully understand you. And Father, yet you made things so simple. You came to this earth. You lived a human life. Father, you offered your own human life up to save ours. A story as simple as anything out there, Father, it's so easy. The youngest of children could understand it. But Father, a story so compelling that it moves the hardest of man, brings them to their knees in tears when they realize exactly what you did for them. Father, may we never deviate from that truth. May we never alter or change your word, compromise our belief in you because of what the world is saying or doing around us. Father, let us be that light that we are to be and not hide it in the darkness. Father, let us stand for your son and who he is. And Father, let us allow the Holy Spirit because that's the thing. The Spirit doesn't move in on its own in us. Father, we, we have to open that door. It doesn't, you do not impress yourself upon us. It's our decision. And I pray that we all begin to get more comfortable with that Spirit within us and the sense of that Spirit within us and who he is and how he's at work in each and every one of our lives at this very moment. And Father, if there's anyone here that has never accepted your son, never received the gift of that Holy Spirit within them, never repented of their sins, Father, then I pray that today is the day of salvation for them and they can join with us moving forward as we carry your banner across this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.